Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Sandy Zip on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Manhattan Projects, The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War New York. Anyone who has ever lived in New York City, and particularly on the island of Manhattan, knows what the expression pre-war building means. It means, first of all, a building that is more desirable than other buildings, namely post-war buildings. Pre-war buildings have a kind of cachet that post-war buildings do not. Pre-war buildings tend to be a bit less modernist, I guess I would say, than post-war buildings. Pre-war buildings tend to be a little bit more ornate, whereas post-war buildings are a little bit more blocky. Sandy Zipp's book... Manhattan Projects does a lot to explain why this distinction is so important for people that live in Manhattan. And the reason is largely urban renewal or a specific wave of urban renewal that started during World War II. Many of the projects that Sandy discusses will be known to you, three in particular. That is Stuyvesant Town, Lincoln Center, and then the various large housing complexes on the Upper East Side all the way into Harlem. You see these places when you wander around the East Village or when you walk up Broadway in the case of Lincoln Center or when you take the train down from New Haven on Metro North. They don't look like other places in Manhattan. They look like what Americans now call projects. Sandy tells the story of how they came to be, how the very well-intentioned people who built them put the deals together to clear the slums and to make life better for people in the areas. It's also part of the story about how New York went from an industrial city to an almost entirely, I guess I would call it, commercial or residential city, a place where things were built and made and killed to a place where money changed hands and services were proffered. It's also a story of wealth and a story of poverty. It's a story of race, lots of different angles. It's about the remaking of Manhattan and the Manhattan that you see today. It's a terrific book. I hope that you get a chance to read it. I enjoyed talking to Sandy today and... Without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Sandy. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. I hope that you're well today. Today we have uh, Sandy Zip on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Manhattan Projects, The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War New York. I was telling Sandy in the pre-interview that one of the things that caught my attention when I first went to Manhattan many years ago, I was traveling from the north, from New Haven to, to Manhattan, and uh, you, you pass through an area that looks for all the world like the Soviet Union, that there are large, large housing blocks like people in the Soviet Union live in. And I always wondered how exactly they got there. I was vaguely aware that it was related to urban rule, but until I read Sandy's book, I just didn't really know anything about it. I just thought it was an architectural oddity. Uh, but again, thanks to, thanks to Sandy's fine book, I, I now know a lot more about it. Uh, and it is a very interesting story, and Sandy will tell it to us today. But before he does, uh, Sandy, would you do us the favor of telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, thanks a lot for having me. First. My pleasure. Um, you know, I uh, I was uh, born in Washington, D.C., actually, not New York. I'm not actually a native New Yorker. Um, I grew up in Washington, and I went to attended public schools there, and um, uh, like most middle-class kids, went off to college, and um, where I did an uh, uh, undergraduate degree in American Studies um, at uh, Northwestern University, where we called it then uh, the program in American culture. Um, and I kind of, I don't know, I was sort of kicking about 
for a, a couple of years, few years after college, um, working in and out of journalism, um, writing, things like that, um, and more or less involved in, in uh, music scenes and things like that. I had always sort of wanted to be a writer. I'd always been interested in music. I published my own magazine. Cool. So living in San Francisco for a number of years, um, working as bike messenger, doing a whole bunch of things. It got me sort of interested in cities and trying to put together um, put together my sort of interest in city life, my interest in, in music, culture, history. Um, and I eventually decided to go back to graduate school and, and went back to graduate school in American Studies. And um, a few years later, began working on the, the dissertation that, that became this book. So I ended up at, uh, at Yale University in American mm-hmm. Studies, where I, I mm-hmm. worked on this on this book. I started actually at George Washington University mm-hmm. in American Studies back home in D.C., mm-hmm. but uh, moved on to Yale and, mm-hmm. and, and began to... You probably took that train from um, New Haven. Many times, to, yes, many times. Yeah, yeah right. because I lived in New York for a great deal of the time that I was working on this book, doing the research. Yeah, I ma- imagine you did. And you see, I'm sure that many of our listeners have seen the same thing, that you go from yeah. from New Haven to... What's that place called? That station North something? It's called Metro New North, Rochelle. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's but, the Metro North line. Metro North line through, yeah. That comes down through the Bronx and across yeah. the river and into East Harlem. And there's a sort of pretty amazing vista that opens up as you cross the, the Bronx River there. Yeah, yeah. And, and how. It really is amazing. So uh, we'll, we'll, happily we'll get to understand how that vista came to be, which is really cool. So why don't you tell us um, uh, how, why you wrote this book? How did you come to write this book? Well, um, that's a good question. I have often asked myself that same question. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I was casting about in, during graduate school for something to write on. Um, I had become newly fascinated with New York. Uh, I, you know, growing up in Washington, one has this kind of sense of New York. It sort of looms in the northern horizon uh, and in everyone's imagination as a kind of uh, you know, it sort of looms there all the time, and um, I'd kind of, I think, taken it for granted. Had been there before, but had never kind of let it get its hooks in me. And as I said, after college, I had moved the opposite direction. Um, when uh, I'd sort of self-consciously chosen not to go to New York, despite my interest in writing and despite my interest in music and all those sorts of things that often brings one to to New York, and had gone to San Francisco instead. But something about New York got into my mind. We would go there, uh, friends of mine, to see bands and to do other things. Um, in those years, uh, during college and after, during various times, and I don't know, I just had gotten fascinated with New York. And here I was um, in New Haven and then, and then living in New York after that in Brooklyn, and I was trying to, to search around for something to write about. And I also wanted to write about something that allowed me to... to um, Think about the relationships between ideas and culture and social life and politics to try to um, forge some kind of well, constellation of meaning between these realms that historians, I think, often keep separate. Um, in a way, I, um, having all my education in American studies programs, I guess I have three degrees in American <laughs> studies now, I work, work in an American studies program now, but I consider myself a historian. I have... Um, and sort of been able to keep at arm's length some of the kind of turf battles that happen in, in within amongst historians of between particularly as I see it. I'm sure there are many more of these, but and, and many finer distinctions. But particularly between uh, the social, uh, the social and political historians that have sort of dominated 
the uh, the um, proceedings in history for the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, and cultural and intellectual historians who perhaps had more cachet a few years before that, um, and the sort of debate over who makes history, right? And I remember a number, many conversations with uh, folks in graduate school, and in, particularly in history departments, who would say, you know, it's 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 ordinary people who make who make history. And then, you know, you talk to somebody who's interested in diplomatic history or something like that, and they would say, well, no, of course. I mean, that's nice to think that, but it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the <laughs> decision makers, it's the the people with power make history. And us over in our little corner in American studies, we were sort of always churning over a bunch of sort of obscure concepts about discourse and culture and sort of uh, far more abstract ways of understanding the way that uh, that change happens. And I wanted to try to figure out how to bring all those together. I think implicitly. I don't think I could I could yet um, I could yet sort of uh, say that explicitly. I was still trying to to work it out. And it's only now later that I see that that's one of the things that was motivating me to try mm-hmm. to, to, to create some kind of triangulation between these realms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was casting about for some material with which to do that. Um, I had always been fascinated with um, the sort of reach and power of modernist ideas, whether it was in various forms of the arts or particularly when it was when it was um, interested in city making or city remaking, and so of course the kind of the the sort of er moment for this, the kind of moment where this these ambitions reach their height, is the moment of urban renewal, the moment at mid-century where um, where it's often said planners and architects were turned loose to remake cities, to uproot old urban forms, and warehouses and uh, apartment buildings and row houses and the old 19th century cityscape and, and replace them with this, this, this newer, um, this newer sort of modern, uh, built environment of plazas and towers. And, um, and I, you know, this was, this had, was already something that was more or less understood. Um, and so I approached it somewhat warily because I didn't, I felt like this was a story that we sort of knew the outlines of. We had a kind of pat, um, sort of takeaway that we could already apply to this to this history. Um, it had been kind of written a generation before, in some ways, by social scientists. Um, we had a sort of story, particularly for New York, where it was the kind of evil Robert Moses versus the um, sort of scruffy uh, the scruffy rebellion of of someone like a Jane Jacobs um, and her death and life of great American cities. Mm-hmm. And these kind of oppositions were very much chiseled into stone and they were very much, um, and they were really chiseled into stone amongst New Yorkers too. This is a sort of folklore of, of a set of myths and a set of stories that, that New Yorkers carried with them, the sort of tower versus the, the, the streets, the, uh, the, the neighborhood, the, the city of neighborhoods and stoops and blocks versus the towers and the plazas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I was wary of going this far into it. I wanted to try to write something that tried to try to to get to that story, but to expand it in some new ways. And I began by trying to write a more, uh, I planned to write a more sort of metropolitan conception of this, to see this in relationship to suburbs um, and to its, and, and the relationship that the city had to its expanding, um, its, its expanding hinterlands. Um, which is was an important thing to understand and continues to be an important thing to understand for urban historians. Um, but that soon proved to be far too unwieldy, and I ended up um, figuring that I needed to focus more concretely on particular places. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, instead of making uh, people the characters in my book, I decided to focus on some particular places and make places the characters in my book. Um, and I, you know, I thought there's a trade-off. I knew that there would be um, there would be sort of costs and, and benefits to to having to focus in. So I ended up focusing in on Manhattan, which is one of the things that I regret, but which I think was necessary in that it, mm-hmm. it opened up. It actually ended up opening up. Um, a sort of broader scope for the book, so it, it actually ended up me allowing me to make larger, um, so make make some larger claims for the significance of what was going on um, in New York because of its of these things being situated in Manhattan, where we have such a concentration of image making and news making and, and significance making already happening. Right? So so thereby these things that were happening to transform Manhattan in these years in the in the twenty years after World War II become. Um, refracted and, and reflected and, and, and um, sort of, what's the word, echoed or, mm-hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, they're made louder by the fact that there's lots of people there to think and talk and, mm-hmm. and make images of them. Amplify, that's what we want, yeah. Amplify is yeah, the word. Sorry, I was I blinking too. I... It, was, it was there somewhere. Um, so anyway, I, um, yes, so I kind of circled in around and I, I basically just, did, you know, I remember saying this to someone uh, as I was circling in around the topic. I said, I think what I'm trying to do in the end is I think I've figured out that I, what I'm doing is writing a cultural history of urban renewal, mm-hmm. which was a sort of odd thing to say because we've, uh, for, for those of us, for, for, for anyone who had thought about urban renewal, and particularly for historians, urban renewal was, on the one hand, this sort of uh, open and shut case. It was something that we understood, we had put into a box, and we had kind of put away. On the other hand, it was not a cultural story. It was a kind of um, social and political story. The only new things that had been said about urban renewal were being said by social and political historians who had really delved into um, the way that it interlinked with larger processes of post-World War II transformation in cities. So there had been, there was starting to be, this is um, early 2000s, late 90s, when I was thinking through all these things, there had started to be a whole new wave of urban historians, um, in post-war urban historians. So folks, uh, Arnold Hirsch would have been the first of them who had first come out with this book in the 80s, but had redone it in the late 90s. Thomas Segrew, um, my colleague Robert Self. Um, who were were remaking how we thought about cities. And for them, urban renewal was simply one little aspect of a much larger story of metropolitan transformation, of struggle between social movements, of attempts to uh, social movements and um, uh, to influence liberalism, um, the kind of uh, struggle to influence the movement of capital, um, whether it was in or out of cities, um, all all kinds of larger um, sort of stories that circulated about around relations between social movements and the state. Um, and I appreciated this literature, I still do, and I think it's enormously important, but I was interested in the ideas, and I couldn't figure out quite how the, the ideas, the, the culture of this, the meanings that circulated around this, for, which were clearly there for people, could relate to those other stories, um, mm-hmm. those larger stories that started to plot. And everybody just kind of... Um, you know, you could you could you could tell this story through a sort of architectural history or a planning history, right? And that had been always been there too, which was just simply to say the rise of modernism and the fall of modernism. Again, the sort of Moses Jacobs thing. The Le Corbusier makes big towers. They go to, they come to New York. Everybody finds them to be overwhelming and rises up and resists them. And I think that story is not wrong either. But how do we, how could it be that these two things fit together? And I wasn't sure how. 
I wasn't yet sure how to make them fit together. So I sort of waded into it and tried to understand uh, to how to how to write these these two sort of narratives together and see how they might change when mm-hmm. when they did. Mm-hmm. And working through these spaces that I selected, which I thought were sort of I, I came to think of them as my iconic Manhattan projects. They're the places that really <laughs> that I think were, were the were the places that really transformed. And and I also got onto this idea, and this is where the title comes from. Although I, I have to the title all credit to the, the title goes to my advisor and dissertation director Jean Christophe Agnew, who suggested it to me one day in one of our earliest meetings on this. He said, well, of course, you'll call this book Manhattan Projects. Uh-huh. And I said, of course, you're right, I will. <laughs> very, uh, <laughs> all credit goes to him on that. Um, he's, he's, uh, has a good mind that creates things like that. Um, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I was, became interesting to me was what role did the domestic political culture of the Cold War play in this? Because, and that became a big, big part of this story. Um, you know, th- this was, in the early, late 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of there were a lot of books coming out about that question in different um, aspects of, of, of um, American social and political and cultural life. So we had books about uh, desegregation as a Cold War imperative. I think was the, the major article written by Mary Didziak. Things like that that showed the way that um, the geopolitics of the Cold War had a domestic front um, and how they influenced various kinds of. Um, struggles within the, the country as well. There are all sorts of things that way. Um, uh, books on, on the family, um, blanking on the name of that, Homeward Bound. Um, you know, there are all sorts of books like that that were, that were fairly influential. And I wondered, was, was there a story here about the influence of the Cold War? And it turned out that there was. It turned out that there was a kind of um, sort of buried but, um, but significant uh, current of of thinking and argument and debate um, that accessed the terms of the Cold War that went through the question, through the history of urban rule, through the rise and fall of this, this thing. So, so what I ended up doing, I think, and what I, was, what I found myself doing, was to try to show how these four different projects transformed the city space um, of Manhattan, transformed people's ideas about um, cities, and to see these four projects as a lens through which uh, urban renewal as an idea itself rose and fell, was made and then unmade. Mm-hmm. And so it was about a kind of spatial account of the transformation in an idea, the rise and fall of this, this idea, and how people fought over uh, making urban renewal a con- the, the sort of conception of, uh, the sort of common sense conception of how to, to change cities for the better, and how that idea itself was, was undermined by the impact of, of urban renewal itself. So that's, that was the sort of major um, way that I arrived. And I think in the end, I, I guess I think of there being sort of four basic um, sort of intellectual, noteworthy intellectual contributions that, that Manhattan Project makes. And I guess the first is to try, is what I talked about, is to try to get, to try to view um, urban renewal explicitly from the perspective of cultural history. Um, seeing it as not only sort of a part of social and political history, but as a sort of major symbolic element in our understandings of, 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 of urban life in post-World War II. So as, a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of um, uh, a disturbance in the realm of meaning as well as much as in the realm of sort of social and political life, and to insist that we be able to see those elements of, of, uh, his time, of change over time as related to one another, as in some kind of an interesting and functional relationship. So that would be the, the first. Mm-hmm. Um, the second would be that 
Um, the resist this is something I haven't quite talked too much about yet, but that the resistance to urban renewal, um, the forces that arose to unmake urban renewal were not just um, didn't just sort of arise in the nineteen sixties um, out of nowhere or with say, for instance, Jane Jacobs' book, um, Death and Life of Great American Cities, which is sort of the, the kind of um, un, sort of uninvestigated assumption that I think a lot of people have had for many years about how urban renewal was undone. No one had really done the history to understand how this happened. But I, what I discovered was that there were a host of different movements, um, and I'm not the first person to have, to have noticed this, but I think I've, I and a number of other people who are starting to write histories of this uh, right now are starting to know, are starting to try to, to spell out this history in a little bit more detail. It's just, and it was to suggest that this history really started along with urban renewal itself in the late 40s and, and, and early 50s, and grew along with urban renewal until it finally became um, powerful enough to unseat those ideas. So what I try to do is, if from in my book, is to tell a bit, little bit of the sort of backstory, the story behind the rise of a figure like Jane Jacobs, who's very important and very powerful figure in the in in unseating urban renewal because of her incredible um, and really dazzling impact of that of Death and Life of Great American Cities, which is a classic work of American literature, but is also and so it has this great impact. But there is this whole set of um, social movements and other kinds of folks who are working on this issue really kind of before she arrives on the scene and from whom she learns a lot and picks up on. So I wanted to sort of give a sense of that story. So in some sense, Jacobs is at the end of my book mm-hmm. instead of the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that's the second one. The third would be um, that, uh, that I wanted us to understand urban renewal as a crucial event in the rise of what we now call the global city, right? That in some sense, it's, it's both... Um, Heralding and laying the groundwork for the rise of the glo- of of a sort of world city, um, and also that it it heralds the rise of what we in the '60s called the urban crisis, and that these two things, this paradox, that urban rule is at the heart of both the city's sort of greatest power and its greatest failings, is what's so interesting about urban renewal, that it under it uh, it underwrites both the creation of a white collar economy in the Manhattan cityscape that will give. Uh, will allow New York to be transformed and survive the years of the deindustrialization that destroyed so many other cities, like particularly the cities that, of the West that you referenced earlier. Um, that it'll allow it to, to sort of outlast those, and but also that it will, in some ways, urban renewal will actually um, provide many of the discon- much of the discontent, or underwrite much of the discontent in terms of um, racial segregation. Um, other kinds of displacement that people that the people have to experience and go through, um, and that that is at the heart of some of what we called in the 1960s the urban crisis, and that these two processes are linked, intimately linked together. And finally, uh, again, just the, the the context of the Cold War to see that the Cold War was both a motivating factor in in in, in the ways that people pitched the idea of urban renewal, seeing it as a bulwark um, against uh, in a domestic campaign to kind of shore up domestic uh, readiness for this battle with the, with the Soviet Union, the sort of battle of images and ideas and um, that we were undergoing in the late 40s and into the 50s and 60s. Um, and also then that, that people who resisted urban renewal drew on some of these same kinds of narratives about the Cold War, but inverted them and said, look, what, why are we creating these places, just as you said, that look like the Soviet Union? Why are we creating places that, who, that are supposed to be modern and new, but seem far more evocative of, their, of our you know, supposedly totalitarian enemy 
who um, want nothing to do with the kind of freedom and individualism that we're supposed to embody in our in our built environment. And so that um, those folks wanted to, to, to roll that back and undo it. Um, mm-hmm. and so you have a kind of um, shared investment in um, in in in, uh, in in the language of the Cold War, but from different perspectives, which which uh, work to help to to make and unmake urban renewal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe so we should start. Yeah, th- thank you, thank you for that. Let's, let's start talking a little bit about the the people that that did this and opposed it, and and what they did. I want to ask a general question mm-hmm. before I talk about each of the or we talk about sure. each of the, the four projects, and that is the, the proponents of uh, urban renewal. Uh, under a different name, Urban Renewal is older. Uh, we know that I was thinking, I think it was Cardinal Richelieu or something. He took down a lot of the walls and barricades from French cities. That's, I think, the 17th century. And then, of course, there's a famous instance of, I guess what you'd call Urban Renewal, and that's Haussmann's um, mm-hmm. uh, Reformation of Paris in the, in the, in the uh, I guess, it was the mid-19th century. And, and, right. and, and then there were even there were earlier efforts in the United States. What did the people that were involved in this kind of a wave of urban renewal called just that urban renewal. What, what did they want to accomplish, and why did they think this needed to be done in Manhattan? Um, okay, uh, yeah, the, there is a long history to, to uh, of course, a very long history, as you suggest, to to remaking cities. I mean, that's nothing new; it goes back to antiquity. Yeah. Um, the new, the, the, what we think of as urban renewal, and what I mean by it is, is, is very specifically is. Um, the the um, powers that were unleashed by the by 19, the 1949 um, U.S. Housing Act and mm-hmm. Title One, particularly of that act. Um, now, this act has, as you suggest, also a much longer history. Right? It goes back into the campaigns for slum clearance and public housing and all these things that go back to the turn of the 20th century um, and pick up steam across the early 20th century. There's, a, you know, there's the 1937 U.S. Housing Act during the New Deal, which provides federal monies for the construction of public housing. Um, there's all sorts of attempts by all kinds of folks, really, um, on, on both sides of the political spectrum and for various reasons to try to want to try to intervene in inner cities, right? So on the one hand, you have... Um, you have various castes of urban reformers, so social workers, uh, quote-unquote housers, right? people who are interested in um, trying to ease some of the social ills of dense urban living and to help working-class people um, with their, the conditions and the environment of their lives. And that these people have both sort of um, benevolent and somewhat paternalistic in, uh, impulses in, do, in wanting to do this, um, there's all sorts of, you know, there's many long histories of those those housing reform um, efforts. At the same time, across the early 20th century, there are lots of more professional real estate people, um, people involved in city planning, people involved in um, particularly just in, in, in all in various facets of downtown um, real estate development, who would like to restore um, property values to downtown cities and are worried that as uh, so-called slums and blight uh, spread across the city, that the city uh, is losing its tax base and are already in the early 20th century worrying about the, po- the problems of, quote-unquote, decentralization, which, which you know, take, start, to, start to accumulate in the 20s with the first wave of suburbanization, um, subside a little bit with the New Deal and the war, or sorry, the Depression and the war, but, um, but are certainly on, every, on people who are paying attention to sort of things radar, and they're worried that, that capital is going to leave the city, as it does en masse after World War II. They're worried about this long beforehand. So after World War II, um, 
there is a, an attempt to create a sort of coalition um, between those who were worried about the social aspects of this, the people who had been the advocates for public housing, the, the reformers, the quote-unquote housers who had been interested in all kinds of European um, experiments in, in social housing, very radical experiments in social housing that had gone on uh, in the 20s and 30s, the kind of classic modernist housing ideas that we think of, the Le Corbusier's, the, the various German um, sorts of social housing ideals. But there's those folks, it's a very complicated story, more so than I can get into now, the various factions believing in different things and different ideas. And those folks and the sort of urban real estate people, so folks who are involved in in home building, folks who are involved in the construction industry, folks who are, are really basically concerned to try to keep um, property values inflated downtown. Now, this is a chancy bargain amongst all these people because they have very different interests. Um, uh, some are much more interested in the social problems and, some are, and others are much more interested simply in real estate value. Um, and many of those who are interested in real estate value are basically trying to, um, to keep property profitable. And to do that, they need a program that isn't just dedicated just to building public housing. Some of them are quite hostile to public housing. Some of them are willing to uh, uh, admit it to their to their coalition to this coalition um, on on a on a sort of junior basis. It's different across the country. Uh, many parts of the country is much more hostile to public housing than New York. I mean, there's been good books written about the sort of uh, the attacks on public housing um, in, in in other cities across the country, particularly places like Los Angeles and Detroit, places where public housing is seen as quite, uh, quite uh, frankly, as socialistic. Um, and so, but what happens is in the late 40s, there's a there's a push um, at the local level and at the national and federal level to to, to make this bargain happen, um, to make this coalition happen, um, and it results um, through a long period of. of Legal wrangling, uh, legal and um, sort of con- sorry, congressional wrangling. I guess is the right way to, to, to put it in Congress with the 1949 Housing Housing Act. Now this takes a while, and it's a huge. Um, it, it sort of fails a couple times in 1946 and 47, and the Congress changes. There's a more conservative Congress comes in, and then a more liberal Congress, and it's finally passed in 49. And there's a huge debate that goes on about it, all over actually over public housing, over the place of public housing. Um, and it's what I discuss in the book as a, a, a battle over the social shape of shelter. And it's about whether or not um, public housing should be a part of this, uh, of, of uh, the federal government's uh, subsidy for trying to rejuvenate cities. And what happens is that, that, it actually, that public housing gets in, but in a kind of weakened position. And the, 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 um, the coalition that supports Title, uh, sorry, the 1949 Housing Act supports most vigorously what is Title I, which is supplying federal money to private rebuilding of cities, mm-hmm. to, um, to, give, um, set, to give local agencies and sets the city or state level um, subsidies of various sorts, tax, uh, tax subsidies, other kinds of ways of making it possible for them to go in and clear land in cities um, and then turn the land over to private redevelopment. So this law ends up being this kind of um, has split into a couple of different parts, a couple of different titles. One of which underwrites private redevelopment. One of which gives money for local um, housing agencies to build uh, public housing, um, and all of it is is tied together in under this model of slum clearance of going in and knocking down old um, the old 19th century cityscape and and putting up new modern uh, modern uh, kinds of uh, state of the art urban planning. Um, mm-hmm. This kind of tower in the 
Park ideal. And what everybody shares in this coalition is the idea that that vision, that vision of Tower in the Park, that Tower in the Park ideal, the, the open plazas um, the, and the taller and austere sort of modern uh, buildings is the proper way to do all this. They've all inherited that kind of vision, um, an, adapt, an adapted version of it. It should be said there's an American sort of adaptation of European ideals. Um, it's sort of, a lot of people said it's very watered down in the process um, as it comes out. It's particularly politically watered down in the sense that it no longer necessarily uh, carries with it many of these kinds of social uh, social visions mm-hmm. that European, West German, particularly, uh, sorry, German social idealism had. So anyway, um, there is this sort of, the emergence of this coalition, of this group of, um, of people who want to, on the one hand, um, try to alleviate the ills of urban living for, for working in lower and, 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 uh, the, and poor, and then on the other hand, it's a group of people who really basically just want to restore property value to, to, make, to make property more profitable in the inner city. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a complicated um, and unstable coalition that, is, that arises out of Title I and that, that is also, uh, also replicated on the, on the um, local level. So you have like a, a figure like Robert Moses who comes out, of, uh, um, comes out of a background in sort of progressive era reformism but quickly sees that he um, his bread would be better buttered by uh, making deals with and um, and working along with um, finance and um, industry, and he uh, proceeds to do that. Although he, for many years, he also was not someone who was was hostile to public housing. He knew there was a role for public housing to play. Um, so he's one element of this, and, and a whole group of very varied group of backers that, and, and, and partners that he partnered with to do these kinds of projects, right? So he did projects with, with you know, the Rockefellers on the one hand to create Lincoln Center and it, within Lincoln Square, and that also involved Fordham University um, and some other major players like that. He, he, he worked with hospitals, but he also worked with labor unions. So he worked with a whole host of people, um, sort of liberals, basically, um, writ large, you know, sort of liberals on the labor side and liberals on the sort of more Manhattan elite side mm-hmm. to, to do these kind of projects, to save particular places where particular institutions had interests. So Columbia University did a ton of urban renewal on Morningside Heights. There are a host of uh, hospitals on the east side. Um, Mount Sinai and Rockefeller did, did their own. Lincoln Square was the, sort of the biggest of them where, where this, this coalition got together to do to do um, to do Lincoln Center and Fordham was involved with the campus for the law school there, and then um, and then you know there, there's other places where labor unions would put together housing uh, nonprofit sort of housing cooperatives where they would build uh, for their members they would build huge um, you know, housing projects. There's, there's a huge one still in Chelsea and a number on the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the sort of thing that and and the first one the one that I talk about first is Stuyvesant Town, which was built with the MetLife Housing by the MetLife um, Insurance Company. Which uh, Metropolitan Life was interested in protecting its its investment in in in, in downtown New York and in, in the early 40s um, before the 1949 Housing Act. It, it partnered with Moses to do this with city and state subsidies. Um, it became a sort of blueprint for what would later become federal urban redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those kind of institutions that are um, just want to protect their investment in city life or um, and want to see um, urban land remain profitable, uh, that get, get involved with this. And in the end, this dovetails well with what urban planners have been sort of advocating for for many years, which is um, the kind of 
uh, movement of, of factories and industry out of cities and the retention within cities of white-collar um, uses. So this was planned for many urban planners had for, for Manhattan. And so they became an important part of this coalition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, in many ways, at the heart of urban rule is one part of a larger sort of transformation that sort of gone slowly but with, with, with great power over the course of the 20th century to transform New York from an industrial city to a, to a white-collar city. And urban renewal has plays a pretty pivotal role in the middle of this, this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good place to start actually talking about the instances. And I, w- I want to begin with the UN because one of the fascinating things about your book uh, is that you have some nice pictures and, uh, and, and <laughs> the, the site of the current um, UN headquarters uh, was, uh, was a, a kind of a meatpacking place district. It had an yeah, abattoir. Right. And yeah, so yeah. usually, I mean, we have the, I believe uh, that, I don't know if this is true or not, but Iowa is certainly one of the centers of meatpacking in North America. Mm-hmm. I never thought of Manhattan as being, I knew it had a meatpacking district, but I thought it was gone in the 19th century. So uh, there was, right. there were, these were major fact. I mean, they're big, they're very big. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, they were I all mean, wiped out by, by the UN. Can you yeah. tell that story a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, a couple things to say about that. I mean, uh, on a couple of different levels here, I, it's important to remember that New York, that New York was, uh, a very powerful and very vibrant industrial city before the war, um, and, and, and into the years after the war for quite a while. Um, it, it had a very complicated industrial past that was much different than many than what we think of, say, a Pittsburgh or a Detroit or a Youngstown, Ohio, or even Cleveland. You know, a place where 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 there wasn't you know one or two industries that dominated. There were multiple industries, and they were mostly more small scale industries. So printing and the garment trade and um, you know, small parts industries and all kinds of things that multiplied in the in the cityscape, particularly in Manhattan and close in in Brooklyn along the water, where they could get their goods out to market. I um, mean, one of the things that that was on the um, on the East uh, River at Turtle Bay was uh, was a small uh, small by the standards of Manhattan, but fairly significant collection of slaughterhouses where they would process meat for the for the local market. Um, this was a, a really kind of interesting place because it had been somewhat it was it seemed like a place out of another time i think in the late 1940s and this is one of the reasons why it didn't survive why there was no there wasn't much of a um there wasn't much of a a movement to try to save this area particularly in the face of what was slated to replace it um and that was the united nations headquarters and i be, i guess i should all the other thing to say about this is i begin my book with the united nations headquarters um for what may seem like a somewhat Odd reason. United Nations headquarters is not actually an urban renewal project, mm-hmm. right? This this land is given to um, this land. This slaughterhouse land is bought by a real estate developer in the nineteen early nineteen forties, I think it is. Um, who uh, William Zeckendorf, who would actually end up being a developer who did tons of urban renewal projects. He did the housing that accompanied the Lincoln Center site. Um, and he well, Zeckendorf owned this land, and he was going to do, do a big futuristic development there after he wiped out all the slaughterhouses because he assumed, like everyone else, that nobody cared about these slaughterhouses and why would they? They shouldn't be in Manhattan anyway, according to conventional and contemporary planning opinion. Like I was suggesting before, this is the kind of use that was outmoded and was a bad, uh, considered a bad uh, use of the land. It wasn't returning the kind of profits it should, and it was smelly and noisome and. And, and nobody wanted it there, it was thought. So he had bought this land, and then he, um, when it turned out the United Nations was looking for a place to to uh, site its headquarters after the war, he gave the land, he made a, uh, he sold it uh, for a very uh, um, sort of fair price to, to the Rockefellers, who then gifted it to, um, gifted it to, 
the city and the, and, and the United Nations to, to create there for, for the headquarters. The reason that I write about it is because I think, I, I think what it is is it's the, it's the kind of the sort of chief and crowning kind of debut of the vision uh, of urban renewal in Manhattan. It's the, the, the headquarters that is, is famously talked about as the first instance in the United States of a glass-walled uh, modernist, house, uh, modernist tower. Uh, but what I think is interesting about it is not only that, but that it is also an emblem, and it was talked about at that time, of a new vision for city planning, not just architecture. It was seen as a way to remake city spaces. And so I argue that there was a kind of linked mission that the United Nations um, symbolized for, for, for Manhattan. It was both the idea that New York would be the home to a new vision of global world peace, right? The, the United Nations, um, uh, its own stated mission, and the United Nations headquarters complex would symbolize how cities should rebuild to equal that, cities should be rebuilt, and particularly Manhattan, to equal that mission. This, this vision um, on order in the sort of built environment of the United Nations itself would would somehow be um, the, the model for how to rebuild the city around it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not the first urban renewal project. It's not the first modernist project. Size and Town is actually underway as it's going on. But it gives a kind of charge. It kind of gives a, a symbolic, um, it's a very symbolic debut in the early post-war years for what it was imagined um, urban renewal could do, both domestically and globally. It was a kind of showed how urban renewal and these uh, modernist planning visions could um, transform both the world and cities. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was very symbolic in that way. And it had to wipe out this particular uh, small district of, of uh, slaughterhouses and um, abattoirs and, and other, there was some other industry there too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an interesting place. I mean, there was all kinds of uh, sort of folklore about that place, including the, idea, including the fact that they, they, because it was, they were, these, these um, slaughterhouses were in city blocks, right? They used to use the streets around them as places as herding pens, basically, for, their, <laughs> for the uh, sheep they would be sending. It was mostly sheep they slaughtered there. It wasn't cows. Um, they, they, but, and, so, and they had a goat um, that was used as a kind of herder. He would herd the sheep, sheep and he had a nick, his name was Judas because mm-hmm. he was betraying them all. Right. He, would, he would herd them to the slaughterhouse, That's and people had, would talk about this. Yeah. So there's some great stories from that and great ways that, that, that it was sort of um, the way that this, the loss of this slaughterhouse district was seen. And this was something that was continually rehearsed again and again, again and again over um, the years in different urban rule sites. This was well, the way that the slaughterhouse could be could be uh, seen as a kind of part of the past that would be necessarily sacrificed, and its sacrifice would ennoble it because it would be giving way for something that would be greater than it, right? So it, would, it was depicted in, in various um, media from that period as, as something that was obviously outmoded, and its, own, its significance now was in the fact that it would give way for, other, for, other, for, for, for a better use and a higher use. Um, and this would this would be repeated many many times, and it, that only became a problem when you asked people themselves to feel that so that way about themselves, to suggest that people themselves should uh, feel uh, good because they were part of uh, their, the, the wreckage of their lives was part of something greater. Um, not that they and they were not really going to. The only way they would partake in it uh, was to to make way for it, and that that came to be the way that people. Um, began to feel about this later on, say at Lincoln Center or at some of the other clearance sites. There weren't very many people who lost their their livelihood at at, uh, at the UN site. It was yeah, only no, later. 
Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of sheep that did. The, uh, <laughs> a lot of sheep, yeah. They were used to that. They were doing that all the time. Yeah, they were doing that all the time. It's true. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about Stuyvesant a little bit. This is a place that I imagine yeah. many, many of our listeners have, have seen. I, I, I remember uh, I've, I've been in it and wandered through it and wondered about it. Where did it come from? Well, Stuyvesant Town is interesting. I mean, I would bet many of your listeners grew up there. People, I, <laughs> I run into people who grew up in Stuyvesant Town all the time. It happens, like, constantly. There were thousands and thousands of people living there, and, and they've gone on to do lots of interesting things and become part of the world. Many It's a fascinating place that, is, that continues to be this kind of um, imaginative, really uh, imaginatively grand part of, of, of New York life, um, even though... It occupies a relatively um, small part of the the, the acreage of the island. It, um, uh, you know, and, and today it's of course this great symbol for the uh, for the real estate and the financial crisis because it was the biggest real estate uh, bust in the history of of, of, of mankind. I guess mm-hmm. it was bought by a, uh, a massive real estate uh, uh, company from MetLife and then who has recently defaulted on it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's fault its fate is in. And it's controversial because it was, of course, seen as this kind of um, last holdout of um, middle-class life in, in, in Manhattan, where everything has gone so upscale and so luxury, which is ironic because its history um, is that of a middle-class district, uh, yes, but replacing a working-class district. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much debated in, in those terms in, in the late 40s when it was being built, when it was, well, in the mid-40s when it was planned and the late 40s it was built. Uh, kind emerges from the need uh, during World War II of Mayor LaGuardia and Robert Moses to find a way to get um, private capital into the slum clearance and, and new housing game. They had, they had in, during, during the Depression and the New Deal, been able to get federal monies to build a bunch of public housing. Manhattan built the mo- uh, sorry, New York and Manhattan and Brooklyn mostly, built the most public housing of any city during, during the, the New Deal. But they thought that with the scope of the problem was so high that they were going to need um, public, sorry, private money to get involved. But private money wouldn't get involved because they didn't want to lose their shirt on chancy real estate deals, chancy um, investments in real estate in, in urban land that they didn't think they would pay. So they needed um, much higher levels of subsidy than they were able to than, than were able to be offered. Gradually over time, um, the state and city governments were able to offer something that at least MetLife was willing to take a, a risk on. And MetLife was willing to take a risk on this because they also saw themselves as needing to shore up um, their investments in, in, in downtown Manhattan where they were based. And, um, and because they saw many of their policyholders were people that lived in and around, and they thought this would be a good investment in, 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 in a sort of symbol of how to, to rebuild cities. So they planned this. Um, they had built in the, in the late 30s and early 40s a big housing development in the Bronx called Perkchester, which is another kind of place like, just like Stuyvesantown, middle, sort of lower middle class, middle class kind of place that, um, but was, that wasn't built um, out of an old neighborhood. That was on, on open land. Um, Stuyvesantown would be different and new because it would be uh, the biggest slum clearance project yet. It would knock out a whole area of the Lower East Side between 14th and 23rd Street west of First Avenue that had, had been called the Gas House District a name that is gone from almost everybody's memories of, of the, the history of New York, but we, which is a pretty well-known place back then. It was the sort of northern tier of the Lower East Side before there was a term, the East Village. And in fact, I think in many ways the creation of Stuyvesant Town uh, north of 14th Street creates this little pocket 
state of the city that could become the East Village in the 60s when it became sort of mm-hmm. part of that, when it became adopted by the counterculture. Um, because you didn't want to go above 14th Street because that was this sort of boring, middle-class, modern um, family life. Below 14th Street was still the, the, the old Lower East Side and being transformed to East Village. Anyway, so Sazentown, it was, uh, it was announced, it was planned, uh, cooperation between city-state funds um, announced in 1943 by LaGuardia and Moses. And, and the MetLife head, a guy named Frederick Ecker. Um, it was built uh, after the war um, on, uh, in, on, in that area of Lower East Side and um, was occupied in 19, 1949 by um, most, uh, many veterans. Um, veterans had preference. Uh, there was a huge housing shortage in Manhattan in these years, um, and so it was like, seen as this kind of great, um, sort of a gift, you know, this great um, symbol of the hope uh, and possibility of the post-war era um, when it when it sort of seemed to descend into this old neighborhood. But it was controversial, um, controversial for the people who had lived in this neighborhood, um, uh, people who lost their, their, their homes to the, the wrecking ball, um, but not controversial enough that anyone could stop it um, or anyone could turn it back. It was seen as too much a part of a post-war plan for hope. It was uh, still, it was that coalition between, um, between business uh, and real estate and um, sort of social reformers were still in place. They all more or less supported um, Stuyvesantown, and um, and so it went forward. Now, the big thing that it was the, the most important controversy surrounding Stuyvesantown was was along lines of, of color, race. Um, the the Town was segregated, and it um, like any private um, landlord, uh, MetLife believed that they had the right to choose who could live in their um, and they didn't want to admit um, African Americans because they thought it would um, destroy their property values, and so they didn't. Um, and so that kicked off a huge battle, um, one of the first battles of the Northern Civil Rights Movement, the sort of lost civil rights uh, history that is only recently being sort of um, sort of retold by historians. Um, Thomas DeGruy's big book, Sweet Land of Liberty, and a number of other books. Um, about the, the Northern Civil Rights Movement, Sizentown is a huge part of this, this attempt to desegregate um, the housing complex. It was led by um, African Americans um, and um, leftists within the complex, um, and it was eventually successful. And uh, MetLife backed down and allowed African Americans in, although never in any great numbers, and it wasn't until the 60s and 70s, 70s really, until Sizentown was at all in any way really integrated. Mm-hmm. But um, but that was one of the big things. But at the same time, it was a place that, that the reason I was interested in it was because it was the, the blueprint for urban renewal policies, really large for federal urban renewal policies in a sense of how that compact would be made, how the deal would be made. And it was also kind of a social blueprint for what would what the controversies surrounding urban renewal would be, both in terms of the relocation and also in terms of the way people thought about these new spaces. Because the people who moved into status in town, um, whether they were involved with the desegregation controversy or not, there were uh, I, I maybe didn't mention this quite uh uh, precisely enough, many of the people who campaigned against desegregation were Stuyvesant Town residents, people who lived there already and thought that it was a shame that their, that their, that their home was, was discriminatory, and they really led the charge by a, a campaign of civil disobedience by allowing um, African-American civil rights activists to live in their apartments and things like that. Um, so many of those people, whether they were involved in that or not, um, really uh, took to heart the idea that what they were doing was trying to make a new kind of space in, in the city, a kind of new um, middle-class landscape. 
And it was, it was the, the problem for them was that this was a mass landscape. It was a landscape of mass homes that were identically produced, um, and they were that was troubling to many people. They worried about the they worried about the impact of, uh, and the what it what it meant that they were living in a house in in, in an apartment building that was uh, was sort of constructed in this kind of factory like style that seemed to be um, one sort of set of boxes after another. Um, now, this wasn't too terrible for many man- New Yorkers because they were used to living in apartment buildings. They were used mm. to living in high-rises. But these, again, as you suggested, these high-rises looked like the public housing that was going up. Right? They looked like something that might be lived in in a, in a far more regimented political culture. People said they looked like barracks. They said, how can you stand to live there? Um, they, they, people were very um, – there was a lot of controversy on and, uh, and many um, – Towers defended their own living there. They said, look, it gives us access to open space, that there's a lot of light and air. Uh, many of them loved it, and they, they, but they had, to fight. they had to fight both amongst themselves and uh, against sort of public perceptions of the project. This sort of battle, um, this sort of kind of uh, struggle within the realm of meaning over what it meant to live in this kind of what I call a mass, uh, mass cityscape for, for middle-class living. Um, and that was very interesting to see that emerge from the sources that I found in the MetLife archives. Um, all these debates over over what authority the the um, MetLife itself had over their lives, debates over how uh, what they could what what uh, what parts of the, the emerging consumer economy um, they could participate in, and how MetLife and other um, how other uh, parts of the consumer economy, department stores in particular, um, sold in town as part of this new post-war consumer economy. So on the one hand, as part of the sort of boom, as almost like an in-town Levittown, a kind of suburban uh, boom, although people, of course, there didn't own their, these were all rentals, they weren't owning so ownership, so it was a little bit different there. But, but it was sort of part of this, this sort of vision of the good life on the one hand, and on the other hand, it was this place that was this kind of um, mass space that everyone had to sort of negotiate and figure out how to live in. And so that kind of tension between freedom and authority is one of those things that, will, that was kind of established in, this, uh, in, in the way that people received the world of Stuyvesantown would, would echo down the years through various other, in, in, in various other places that are reconstructed in various different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's the Stuyvesantown. Yeah, let's move, let's move on to Lincoln Center then because I, yeah. I think many people have seen it uh, as well and maybe been to a concert or something there. I know I yeah. have, and I've always wondered how it got there. Now, I mean, I know, but maybe you could tell us. Yeah, Lincoln Lincoln Square Lincoln Center is the is the heart was the heart the sort of centerpiece of a larger urban renewal project called uh, the Lincoln Square Urban Renewal Project. Um, I think Lincoln Square is again one of these these words that has or terms for an area that has a bit faded. Um, Lincoln Square is the area where around where Lincoln Center is, um, 60th Street and North on the Upper West Side along Columbus and Amsterdam Avenues, um, Broadway and that sort of triangle area in there. Um, it was an area that was quite um, kind of run down by the 1940s and 50s. It was an area that had seen a lot of, uh, of transition and change, a lot of um, de- uh, decline in its housing stock, a lot of combinations of, of old um, row houses and middle-class sort of row houses into rooming houses and apartment houses. It, was, uh, it had been um, seen a whole population of African-Americans move in in the early part of the 20th century and then move out to Harlem in the 20s and had recently... Um, started to see a, a, in the post-war era a, a huge influx of Puerto Ricans. So it was a neighborhood that was really undergone a lot of change, was in, was in a lot of um, flux. And it, um, through a various different 
means became um, a, the, a place that Moses, Robert Moses, targeted as a new home for um, the Metropolitan Opera, which um, needed to move from its uh, home at Carnegie Hall and was uh, looking for a new place to, to locate. And so, uh, by various different um, uh, various different uh, means, by which I won't go into too much detail. Um, a number of different arts organizations decided to band together and be a part of this move and take up take Moses up on his offer to to relocate. And they wanted to create this great arts center, um, and so they created Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which was headed by John D. Rockefeller III, who wanted to try to um, expand his family's um, interest in philanthropy to urban redevelopment, um, and 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 saw a, a sort of. Uh, he, he was the sort of visionary behind this behind this idea that art, the arts, would play a new role in in city rebuilding, um, which has of course become a, a, a massive theme in city rethinking. But Lincoln Center was one of the, the major places to, to start this, um, and they attracted uh, and Moses helped them put them together with Fordham University and a couple other um, institutional anchors, and they created the Lincoln Square Urban Renewal Project, which was. Um, very consciously seen as the kind of crowning jewel of urban renewal in New York, the, the most high-minded of all urban renewal undertakings, um, the most sort of um, exalted of them, and also the biggest. It was, in terms of space, square footage up to that point, the biggest. Um, it was seen as being led by very responsible uh, project sponsors, mm-hmm. unlike some other urban renewal projects, which had been mired in all sorts of uh, sort of uh, really kind of tawdry uh, corruption scandals in terms of sort of real estate corruption scandals. Um, and, and, and it was. It was fairly well run. Um, it targeted this area where Lincoln Center is now, plus a, a sort of cluster of blocks that, uh, to the northwest of, um, of the Lincoln, where Lincoln Center is today, running from, uh, from 60th Street, where Fordham would be, up through the Lincoln Center site, uh, where, and then across 65th, where Juilliard is now, and then running west uh, almost to the river, where there was a whole uh, a host of... Um, Big, uh, big housing middle, uh, well, actually more like a luxury housing uh, development put in there called Lincoln Towers, which was planned, right. as I mentioned, by William Zeckendorf. So it was, it was planned in um, the early 1950s and um, went, went through a huge amount of delays because of the resistance, which I'll talk about in a second, um, and then was finally built over the course of uh, sort of 1959 to the late 60s in, in stages. And... Um, and it um, remade that part of the Upper West Side and really, I think, in many ways, jump-started uh, the boom in the Upper West Side. It was the sort of energies that, that Lincoln Center let off, um, you know, helped to fuel the gentrification of the Upper West Side that would proceed over the next um, 20 to 30 years. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to remember, but in the 19... I mean, sort of, many, many people don't know, but in the 50s and 60s, um, the Upper West Side was not a place that people would have just, just thought of as, as fashionable or as um, as the kind of place where anyone wanted to go. Uh, in fact, there's great stories about the people in Stuyvesant Town um, over on the east side when they were when they were being relocated. Asked where they might want to relocate. Well, they all said they wanted to relocate right nearby because that was where they're familiar with. But they said as long as it's not on the west side, because the west side was of course seen as 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 that was actually seen as, as a, a step down from even from the from parts of the, of the east side, um, the lower east side. So you know places like Hell's Kitchen and even north of that, all of the west side was seen as quite a quite a problem. But this the Lincoln Center was was the sort of bid to reclaim that and helped to lay the groundwork for that 
for that gentrification. So, mm-hmm. um, and it was also the thing that was really interesting about it to me was the way that Lincoln Center, in particular, was sold as a kind of part of this kind of, was sort of the highest moment where the sort of Cold War logic of urban renewal came to be um, came to fruition and came to be really publicly um, not just debated but publicly really um, pitched. It was pitched as a kind of part of um, showing America's cultural maturity to the world. This is the way the sponsors of Lincoln Center pitched it and the way people discussed it. It was seen as a way to um, uh, show that the United States was ready to meet the challenges of the post-war world, of global dominance, of its, of its role in leading the free world. Um, and then people talk quite explicitly about this, from Rockefeller to other people who were involved in the, in, in, in the, um, the organization that created Lincoln Square, people like C.D. Jackson, who was the uh, publisher of the Time of Fortune, um, the sort of time, those great big sort of conglomeration of elites um, across some divisions in, in New York society, uh, were Jewish and Catholic and Anglo or, or sort of WASP folks who worked together on this. Um, to really create this this kind of bastion of um, of high-minded liberal city re- city rejuvenation was the, was the idea, um, and so uh, Lincoln Center was sold in this way um, and sold in this this ideal of a city remaking, um, high-minded city remaking for for a new post-war and Cold War era. But what they didn't uh, foresee was that the the people who lived there um, in in Lincoln Square would not see their sacrifices in quite the same light. Um, and what's interesting about what happened at Lincoln Square is that Lincoln Square is the place where resistance to urban renewal first made a kind of um, noisy debut on the public stage. It wasn't the first place where uh, urban renewal uh, had met resistance, but it was the first place where that resistance began to gain some kind of a public hearing and some kind of a public, uh, sort of a public, um, that got really into the public eye, I guess you might say. Um, and that was in part because um, by 1956 and 57, when the resistance really took off, uh, there was starting to be um, some grumbling behind the scenes and in some quarters of New York life that perhaps Robert Moses had gone too far. <laughs> there had been corruption yeah. at a number of his sites. There had been a lot of there had been a lot of controversy over relocation because. Uh, meaning um, relocation from these highway building sites and urban renewal sites and all the different places where there was construction and, and, and clearance going on. Because what it seemed to be happening, and nobody could really prove this, but it, was, it seemed to be more and more the case that there, um, Moses would constantly tell everyone, um, and his house, the New York City Housing Authority would agree, because he basically controlled the Housing Authority, that there was plenty of housing to go around and plenty of um, you know, units for everybody who's being displaced. But it turned out that he was probably just recycling the same numbers to, to use at every individual site. And then the individual clearances far surpassed, or, or, or relocatees, dislocatees, far surpassed the number of available units um, in public housing and in what, what could be estimated by the real estate industry existed in private housing. And so this had started to build. Um, and the Lincoln Center resistance uh, which was led by a group of um, there was a two groups there. There was one that, that uh, represented the homeowners, or sort of the renters, the tenants, basically. There were some homeowners, but it was mostly tenants. And then people who represented the businesses there, um, small businesses there, who, who who grouped together under one one um, umbrella organization, and um, they really capitalized on this. And they hired a guy um, who is also a somewhat unjustly forgotten figure, still alive today, a, a man named Harris Present, who was a lawyer. Um, who's now in his mid-90s, um, and he um, 
he campaigned. He helped them to um, to sort of get their message out there. He had been involved with a number of different social reform agencies over the years as a as a lawyer, um, as a pro bono lawyer, and um, he had actually been involved with uh, a, a body seeking to reform relocation policies for for, for uh, urban renewal and, and public housing, and he became very disillusioned with that process and wanted to move to a far more aggressive stance in trying to press the mayor, Mayor Wagner, and Moses to, to do something about these problems. And so he saw as an opportunity linking up with the Lincoln Square folks because this would be a high-profile battle if they could tap into uh, the fact that here was this great big um, culture, institution of culture planned for a place that was... Um, that was threatened by this. And so they did, and they were able to really um, get onto the front pages of the papers, get their images in the paper, get their get quoted in a way that nobody had ever been before. I mean, before this, um, there had been little rumblings, but uh, most most folks who were being uh, relocated from urban rural such as they protested, they were really only heard by really the left-wing press. Um, they were really only given much time in those press. There's a little bit here and there in the bigger papers, um, but it's largely because they were championed by movements that were connected to the Communist Party in various ways mm-hmm. and, and the various left parties in the city of those years. And those those folks had, had really jump-started a movement. Um, it was the folks at Lincoln Square who came along from a, far, a bit more of a centrist position, but which, which moved left as things went along, so to speak, moved and got more radical as things went along, who were able to bring it to a larger city-wide audience. And it really started getting attention in the, in the Times and in the Herald Tribune and the other major papers. There have been a couple papers, like the New York Post, which was a liberal paper then, um, <laughs> would, uh, which before it was, it was owned, by a, owned by a very crusading liberal family before, what's his name, had descended from, uh, from, from, from uh, England. Um, anyway, so they, um, they were able to get this out to many people. Now, they failed, of course, but they were able to make an argument, which I, which I was mostly interested, was very interested in, was that their world, their, the, 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 the social world that they inhabited in this, this streetscape of Lincoln Center, in this neighborhood of Lincoln Square, was the equal in, its, in cultural terms to that on offer at Lincoln Center. It was a bottom-up model of culture, but it was as equal and as valuable as the, as the top-down uh, version of high culture that would be represented at Lincoln Center. And they, um, they really made an interesting argument about this by showing how there was this whole cultural world that was a sort of a world that was yoked together, um, uh, public and private, right? Their, their homes, their businesses, it's all worked together in this kind of urban network, right? And they were in many ways rehearsing the ideas that would later come to become so influential and so inspiring when they were articulated in a, in a far more dramatic and literary fashion, um, in convincing fashion, by uh, Jane Jacobs. Um, they were sort of rehearsing some of these ideas, trying to figure out what it was about their world that could equal the vision on hand um, and on offer from Lincoln Center. Now, they weren't able to turn back that project, um, and they weren't able to undo it, but they were able to show that there was a real world there. There wasn't just this sort of benighted slum world that was just a series of statistics that needed rectifying. They said, this is a, this is a world that, uh, that consists of real people in their lives, um, there are businesses here. There are there's a whole social uh, dense ecology of of life. Um, they wouldn't use those terms, but mm-hmm. that, those would be terms that would be used by by Jacobs later. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that was what was really interesting about um, Lincoln Square to me. This is the place where uh, resistance to urban renewal first rears its head in a in a significant way, 
not only in terms of its social impact, but in terms of its cultural impact, in terms of the meanings that would later come to really unseat urban rule, to, to replace urban rule as a vision of urbanism, right? An entirely different understanding of what it means to live urban life and how one might nurture urban life that Jacobs was so powerful in describing mm-hmm. and, and that were rehearsed at Lincoln Square. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the last case uh, very briefly, if we can, because we're about out of time. And, and that would oh, okay. be, again, this, this cityscape that you see when you're coming down from New Haven on Metro North. Yeah. Well, that's East Harlem, and East Harlem was, um, I, I included it in the book because it's the most densely redeveloped neighborhood uh, by way of public housing. It's where uh, some people argue that maybe we should be looking, uh, if you say that, you should be looking at the Lower East Side or at Brownsville, uh, Brooklyn, or other places. But East Harlem was one of the places where people were most took notice of the fact that uh, what, uh, to what happens to a neighborhood when um, it's transformed almost solely by, uh, by public housing, by the New York City Housing Authority. Um, and uh, there, it, it was, I think I described earlier the way that public housing was a kind of junior partner to urban renewal in these campaigns to remake cities. Um, and so public housing um, was damaged by this, the fact of its being a junior partner. But in New York, there had always been an active public housing um, lobby and an active public housing movement. Um, and so they had quite a bit more power than many other cities to build, and they did actively build, and they actively saw what they were doing as trying to, to build for, um, for people. But what happened was is that the density of, this, uh, the density of this, this rebuilding got to be so much that many people on the ground in East Harlem started to look around and say, look, we, are, is this really what we wanted? I mean, almost everybody supported it in the late 40s and early 50s. By the mid-50s, there was started to be a lot of questioning, and not the least by uh, a group of characters that I became really interested in who were a group of social workers who had been involved with many of the neighborhood um, settlement houses there who had called um, in the 30s, 40s, and, and in the early 50s for more public housing. And they continued to think that public housing was a good idea, but they weren't so sure that just these sort of monolithic um, the sort of monolithic culture of all public housing was such a good idea. So what they did is they began to um, advance new ideas about redesigning public housing and introducing more mixed income and maybe even some um, uh, mixed income or middle, actually more like middle income projects into the middle of this, sometimes urban renewal projects that were more uh, based for middle income folks so mm-hmm. that they could restore some of the diversity to the neighborhood that they had seen there before. Um, where you had a much more mixed cityscape of, of uh, proprietors of stores living next to working families and poor families. And, uh, whereas in public housing, you just simply had these kind of monocultures of, of families with children um, who were lower, lower income, um, not quite poor because really poor people couldn't afford public housing, mm-hmm. but um, also not too wealthy because if you got too wealthy, then you had to move out of public housing. Um, so anyway, they, they, they introduced a whole set of reforms that tried to rethink public housing um, from, the, from the perspective of the city street rather than the tower and the plaza. And they tried to introduce some redesigns that, that um, needed, the, needed the landscape of um, public housing and new public housing designs back into the city streets in various ways. Um, they were aided in this by Jane Jacobs, who was on the board of the Union Settlement House and became part of the efforts of the East Harlem Project an early um, community organizing effort there to try to do, do some of this work. And so she got some of her early inspiration from working with the social workers of East Harlem and a planner by the name of Albert Meyer, who was really influential in this. Um, so there were a number of folks in, in East Harlem who helped Jacobs. Um, a woman by the name of Ellen Lurie was particularly influential there. Mildred Zucker was another. And they all, they all tried to, to rethink urban renewal as, as, as it's on its physical impact. 
Um, and this had various interesting Im, um, implications for East Harlem. Um, the social workers themselves actually never really wanted to give up uh, public housing. They thought it was a good idea. They just didn't want so much of it, and they wanted to rethink how it impacted the city. But what it ended up doing in the long run was introduce um, and give impetus to this rethinking of urban renewal and urban and modern planning that would uh, drive Jacobs' efforts. And so then I end the book by suggesting that all this turmoil at these different places sort of combines in the moment in the early 1960s when Jacobs um, both leads uh, resistance to urban renewal in Greenwich Village and uh, releases her book, which galvanizes all these disparate movements into a larger movement that ends up unseating urban renewal as sort of state-of-the-art, dirigeur, common-sense form of city remaking mm-hmm. and replaces it with, with a different different set of ideas. Yeah, I was going to ask about that very briefly. Can you tell us what different mm-hmm. set of ideas that was? Is the era of these large housing blocks of the, I, I always think of them as the Soviet style. Is it over? Right. The modernist tower yeah. block. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's replaced by, by a vision in which, um, in which we plan from, from the idea of mixed-use um, streetscapes. We plan from the idea of uh, short blocks. These are sort of some of Jacobs' big ideas, um, all of which has become common sense in planning and, and architecture today. What didn't go out was um, sort of relying upon the private real estate market as mm-hmm. the uh, driver of, of, re- of development. Um, and so that's caused a, a host of problems. Um, but, you know, the uh, yeah, the the era of the the, the the tower in the park is largely over. Although you have actually seen in recent years some return to some of this sort of um, vision of, of modernism. Modernism came back into fashion over the last ten or fifteen years in some interesting ways, um, and so it's not dead entirely. Um, it was dead for the sixties, for the for the seventies and the eighties, I think. Um, so you know, there's been some interesting sort of uh, implications of that in, in planning and architecture. I'm, I'm mostly interested in the way that this was the sort of moment in which urban renewal kind of had, had really interesting effects, and I've wanted to kind of complicate our understanding of urban renewal as just this sort of evil thing that was left <laughs> in history. It's in part, it, it, I mean, I don't think we need to, to, to re, re, rejuvenate it necessarily, but I do think that it had interesting and complicated effects. I mean, it opened up the city for all kinds of new forms of development. The towers in the park, um, 30, 40 years on, uh, don't seem quite so evil as they've blended more into the, the cityscape around them. They, um, they've, they've really preserved some uh, room in the city for middle-income people, right? I mean, there's a reason why Sizentown is celebrated as this kind of refuge in the city rather than, uh, you know, now. It's a place where we're where in an in a, in a overbuilt, uh, very expensive city. Middle-income people can still have a little bit of a hold. There's a lot of public housing in the middle of the city, and that's all due to the, this era, the remaking of this, of this era. Yeah. So um, I wanted to see it as both uh, a part of the, not the, the fall of New York necessarily, but, but this transformation of New York into a world city, a, a white-collar city on the one hand, and also causing these problems of, of, of the urban crisis. So a complicated story, more so than we've had yeah. in the past, all part of this sort of domestic culture of the Cold War that had such, in, such interesting and complicated implications. Yeah. I was just reminded, actually, while you were talking of uh, an expression that every New Yorker knows. I didn't know it before I uh, moved to New York. I only lived there about a year and a half, and, uh, mm-hmm. but it is pre-war building. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, in no place else. Yeah. No one will know what that is if they haven't lived in New York. Oh, yeah. Pre war building. Right. Yeah. That's like a thing. Right, I live exactly. in a pre war building. And, it's, and your book does yeah. a, a lot to kind of um, to explain why, that, why that, that small and inscrutable phrase is important for New Yorkers. Uh, anyway, Sandy, thanks very much for being on the show. I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is uh, what are you working on now? Um, 
well, I've got two projects going. One a sort of short-term thing, and one a long-term thing. One is um, one is a, a couple of essays, maybe a book. I don't know about uh, visions of um, what I call popular internationalism. Seeing um, it just uh, during and after World War II, uh, people who envisioned a new role for the United States in the world um, uh, before the Cold War sort of foreclosed such kind of utopian or, uh, I don't know, adventurous thinking. So I'm, I'm, I've written a piece on E.B. White and his thinking on world government, which is referenced a little bit in the, the U.N. section of the book. Actually, mm-hmm. that's where I was inspired to, to think about it. And I'm, I'm thinking of writing also about Wendell Wilkie and his book, One World. Um, got something coming on that. Um, and then I'm also, I've got a long-term project that is far more complicated and far more uh, that I call the city and the self, and it's about thinking about the relations, the intellectual relationships and, and practical relationships between development of metropolitan spaces and conceptions of selfhood, which I will leave hanging. Well, it all sounds, it all sounds, it all sounds super interesting to me, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you about it when these projects come to fruition. And so I, I'll yeah, just say th- sure. thank you very much for the book. It was very interesting to talk to you today, and, and uh, uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sandy Zip about his book, Manhattan Projects, The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War, New York. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.